Isaiah chapter 14. Um, hopefully, um, if you haven't, you can grab one, but hopefully you grabbed a um, your song sheets along with the outline, just a short outline I have for you there, so you can just follow along. Um, also, you'll see on the back, if you haven't noticed already, there's a map. I'll get to that when we get there. Um, so we're, we're, we'll, we'll follow this, this outline. Um, so again, we're in chapter 14 today in Isaiah. Uh, we're looking at verses 20, uh, excuse me, 28, yeah, 28, through chapter 16, verse 14. So keep your Bibles open, your apps open, your tablets, whatever you have, so you can follow along in the Word of God with us. That would be great. Uh, we're going we're gonna to study Isaiah for a couple of more weeks, and then uh, toward the middle of the summer, begin, probably sometime in the beginning of July, we'll jump into the pastoral epistle, uh, Titus, which we'll be in for uh, at least until then, the, for the fall, September. We'll just kind of take a break from Isaiah and do the book of Titus to get us. So that's where we're going. Um, as I mentioned last week, Isaiah is broken into three major sections. Uh, chapters 1 through chapters 39 is a major section, 40 through 55, and then 56 through 66. 66 uh, chapters, obviously, in the book. Um, and it was in the first 12 chapters where we met the prophet Isaiah. And we not only met the prophet, but we got a really good sense of his calling, his mission. Uh, much of it came from his encounter with God. If you remember in chapter 6, he, he was the year that the king Uzziah of Judah died. And Isaiah was brought into the presence of God. Uh, whom he saw sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Chapter 6. The train of his robe was filled, had filled the temple. And the seraphims, these angels, were flying, calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Uh, three times, superlative. Uh, there's nothing greater than the holiness of God. And the whole earth is full of his glory. The foundation shook and smoke filled the temple. And the only thing Isaiah could do is really just see his, his sin and his brokenness and cry out, Woe is me! I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. He recognized not only his sin, but their sin. And then being crushed by the weight of his sin, God in his grace, God in his mercy, took the seraphim and flew the seraphim down and grabbed a coal, if you remember, from the altar and touched Isaiah's lips and he said these beautiful words to Isaiah. These are the words you want to hear when your sin is exposed and your people's sins are exposed. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And after that incredible event, Isaiah now is sent out to God's people with God's message. And unfortunately for Isaiah, God told him that the people are not going to listen. That their hearts will remain dull, their ears will be heavy, their eyes will be closed to the truth. And in many ways, that, that encounter that Isaiah had with God in that temple is the picture of chapters 12, chapters 1 through 12. It was, it was the people of God whose hearts became dull and, and their sin was exposed. God, through his prophet, has been revealing his holiness, his sovereignty, and his might. And it was Isaiah's hope, I'm sure, that the people would turn from their covenant-breaking sin and, and, and would re- repent and turn and run to their covenant God, who continuously shows his people grace and mercy. We just sang about it. Even the sending, we looked at this, the, ascend, the sending of the Assyrian nation was an act of love. And with that backdrop, as we finish the first sex, subject in verse one, chapter 1 through chapter 12, Isaiah turns from prophesying not so much against his people, though it's here, it's mainly against other nations. We see chapters 12 through 27. And as we look at this oracle, um, I want to just remind you what I mentioned last week. 
these oracles, these, uh, these burdens, these pronouncements on other nations are just as much as announcement of disaster toward these nations as it is an announcement of salvation for God's people. The destruction of God's enemy means salvation for his beloved children. Mainly first to them. Last week we looked at the oracles against Babylon mostly and then a little bit of Assyria. This morning we're going to look at the oracles, the announcements against Philistia and Moab. You have the handout before you. Just typically two Two, out, two major points, and then we have, as you see, four subpoints under point two. So first, the judgment of Philistia and the refuge for God's people. Second, the judgment of Moab and the weeping prophet. So that's, that's where we're going. I need to hold this down before it blows all over the place. I got rubber bands. So look with me at God's word. We'll look at first point one, the judgment of Philistia, uh, the Philistines and the refuge of God's people. Chapter 14, verses 28 through 32. An oracle concerning Philistia. In the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying fiery serpent, and the firstborn of the poor will graze, the needy lie down in safety, but I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant it will slay. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes out of the north, and there is no stragglers in his ranks. What will one answer the messengers of the nations? The Lord has founded Zion. And in her, the afflicted of his people find refuge. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. If you noticed, this oracle, this pronouncement is given with a specific time in mind. It should remind us of Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah received this call in the year that the king Uzziah died. That's not there just for fun. That's there for a reason. There's context behind that meaning. It helps us to understand it. If you remember, Uzziah was a beloved king, and he he had military success. He, He brought considerable unity and prosperity to the nation. But he got proud. His people got proud. And God struck Uzziah with leprosy. And that information helped us to understand the prophecies against God's people for their sins of of pride and self-sufficiency. They had everything. They didn't need God. Here we read about the death of Ahaz. Not long ago in chapter 7, we saw how Ahaz was the king of Judah and that Isaiah, the prophet, was told to go to the king of Judah, Ahaz, and tell the king to be careful. Chapter 7, verse 4. Be quiet. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear and do not lose. Do not let your heart be faint. Remember the context. Isaiah went to Ahaz because Ahaz was afraid. He was afraid of the alliance that was coming together between Israel, Ephraim, and Syria. Those two nations got together and they were going to try to, you know, attack and hold off the Assyrian nation. And Israel and Syria got together, went to Judah and said, look, join us. Uh, And they threatened Judah. And Ahaz of Judah, instead of running to God and listening to his prophet, remember what he did? He went to the Assyrian nation, the world power, to make an alliance with them. That's that king. In fact, 2 Kings 16, you should jot that down, 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28. If you haven't read it, it talks about the, the 
destructive practices of this King Ahaz who has just died. His, his idol worship. His, his sacrilegious, uh, sacrilege acts against the temple. He desecrated and, and rebelled against the Lord by killing, by sacrificing his own children. You'll read that in the, in the scripture. Today it's legal, we call it abortion. But then it, it, the king had sacrificed his own children. You may also remember that King Ahaz, when he met the king of Assyria in Damascus, he saw a temple there, a, a pagan temple, and told his priests, let's, let's get that pagan temple and bring it back to Jerusalem, to Judah, and let's worship the pagan gods. He set up temples all throughout Jerusalem and Judah so all the people can worship pagan gods. That's Ahaz. That very wicked king, Isaiah says in chapter 14, verse 28, has died. There's a new king now. His name is Hezekiah. We're going to talk about him on another day. It's around 715 BC. The king has died. The wicked king is dead. Assyria, the dominant world power, is suffering a little bit. They got some brokenness within their ranks. There's some instability following one of their very well-known kings in 721 BC. And Philistia, as we will read in chapter 20, has doing, doing what other nations have done. They're running to Egypt. They're running to other nations, including Judah, to have this conspiracy against the Assyrian nation who keeps growing in power. Even though there's problems within the ranks, they're, they're growing in power. And Philistia, the king, goes to Judah, who's now Hezekiah, and says, join us, another conspiracy against Assyria. And just like before, Isaiah is telling the king, this new king Ahaz, do not join with foreign pagan nations. Trust the Lord. And that's what, look at verse 32, that, that conspiracy of, of Judah now joining with Philist, uh, the Philistines to, to fight Assyria is what 32, the question 32a is. What will one answer the messengers of the nation? The, these messengers that are coming and saying, join this alliance. Verse 32b, the Lord, as the, as the answer, the Lord has founded Zion. The Lord established Jerusalem. And in her, the afflicted of his people find refuge. They find refuge in Zion. Not the conspiracies that are being built with other nations, whether it's, Philist, whether it's the Philistines or the Egyptians. And the backdrop then of this oracle to God's people who it's been delivered to is clear. The Philistines were expecting these alliances to take place and this freedom and this, and this, this, um, this idea that they will fight the oppressors will be in vain. God has other plans that if they join the alliance with the Philistines, they, like the Philistines, we'll see in this oracle, will be destroyed. Look at the first verse, 29, verse 29. It's telling the people of God, that although the Philistines are rejoicing, it says rejoice not. Even though they're rejoicing, it's telling the people rejoice not. They're, they're celebrating, but their, 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 their alliance is going to be destroyed. They're, they're greatly mistaken. Don't rejoice with them. It's not going to go the way they want it to go. And even though one king has died, I think that's what he means by the, the serpent's root. Or no, excuse me. All of you that the rod that struck you is broken. So they're rejoicing. Whoop, we got some wind. Oh, not tied down. Yeah. 
Oh, there was. Little ones. Okay. Now we pray no rain. If you go to verse 29, you'll see them say, the rod that struck you is broken. In other words, the Philistine army was struck by Assyria. They had done damage to Assyria. And they thought, you know what? If we could just come against them, we could move on. But he says, no. The rod that struck you is broken, but there's more kings coming. The serpent's root will come from the adder. Its fruit will be the fiery serpent. And what he's saying to the Philistines is, although the Assyrian king is dead, the one that was harming you, there's more to come. There's more to come. And for them, there's no hope. But for God's people, look what it says in the next verse. The firstborn, or but the firstborn, or the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy lie down in safety, but I will kill your root with famine. So what he's saying, there's a contrast between God's people and the poor of, of Jerusalem who are shepherded by God's grace is in contrast to the struck ones in Philistia, or the Philistines. There's no hope for them, but there is hope for God's people. And I, and I want I want to draw that first principle as we look at this text. What God is showing them and what God is teaching us that if it is the, it is the helpless one, it is the weak ones, it is the, the poor in spirit who depend on Christ, who, who, may, who may seem weak to the world or dependent upon God as seen as weakness in the world, but to them they'll find safety, they'll, they'll be a grazing, they'll be safety, they'll be stronger than the powerful, those who think they're powerful and they find their dependency upon themselves and not God. You see that contrast in verse 30. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is a very self-righteous, arrogant, pompous, strong Pharisee who knew his Bible. And he was humbled by God when God met him. If you remember, Jesus met him on the road and knocked him off his horse. And you know what Paul had to say after that, when he felt the strongest, was not in his Bible knowledge. Paul said he was the strongest when he was the weakest. Second Corinthians 12. To keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation is this thing that God is showing me. A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I said to the Lord... Get it away, it should leave. But the Lord said to me, no. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power, God's power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I'll gladly boast in weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul goes on to say, for the sake of Christ then, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, calamities. For when I am weak, I am what? Strong. Not for the prideful. The prideful are told in verse 30 to wail. Wail, O gate. Cry out, O city. Melt in fear, O Philistia. All of you, for smoke comes from the north. That's the Assyrian army. And there are no stragglers in his ranks. They're coming. The Philistines were known for their city walls, their gated walls. And we know once the gates are breached, there's nothing stopping them. The entire city is dissolved. She will be destroyed. God will have the final say. Assyria has been having troubles, but they're not broken completely. And the Philistines who are under judgment of God, God is going to use the Assyrian nation to bring judgment to the Philistine people. So the question in verse 32, what will answer the message of the nation is only one that the people want to hear. The Lord has been, 
uh, founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. It is God who brought Zion into existence. Zion is the only place for security. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago. The priest feels good though, right? Everybody's like, yeah, this is nice. It seems like Isaiah's whole job and function, and maybe we can say that as a pastor or a father or, or a leader, is to, to say, look to God, trust God. His whole life was about telling people to trust the Lord. How hard is it? How hard has it been for the people of Judah to trust the Lord? How hard is it for you this morning, whatever you may be going through, to trust the Lord? I mean, we think, we, we fall into this trap where we think that by our own strength, by our own wealth, by our own wisdom, we could have security and certainty. And certainly this, this virus and all that's going on in the world is showing us and teaching us that which we cling to can be taken from us very quickly. Where are your, where is your refuge? To whom will you run? Mark chapter 8, Jesus said, if you want to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever will, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Clinging to those things. I could do this. Whatever loses, but whoever loses life for my sake, Jesus says, and the gospel will save it. The losing oneself biblically is, is dependency, is total dependency upon God. Is that person who's secured no matter what's going on around them. Losing your life in God and the gospel is basing your identity, your personhood, you're your, your relying upon him and him alone when all the dust settles. C.S. Lewis said this, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. He says, look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in, end quote. Where do you turn for your refuge? The gospel, the work of Christ, is our only refuge. All that he provides for us will be firm, will stand firm when all else is taken from us. Are you running? Do you find refuge in Christ? That's a comfort. That's a consolation for God's people. Christ has come and the afflicted, the weak, the wounded can run to Jesus and find comfort. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Isaiah is saying, don't make Silly alliances with the world. To try to find refuge in the things of this world. It will do you no good. It will do me no good. We'll end up empty. We'll end up like the Philistines. Trust the Lord. That's my, that's a challenge this morning. Let's not do what seems most reliable upon worldly wisdom. Upon human perspective, let's, let's be a people that do what God has called us to do. What God has revealed to us in his word to do. Let's follow his instruction instead of relying on wrong alliances and unhealthy relationships. Whether, whether it's money or status or influence or any other support system, we need to trust in God. 
Look to him. Whether it's a loss of a job, health crises, trust God as our refuge. That's the first point. Look at number two. The judging of Moab and the weeping prophet. Now, as we go into the second oracle, I'm going to go through it quickly. There's a lot of verses here, so just stay with me. There's something different about this oracle, and you're going to hear it in a moment. There's something different that we've been reading up to this point about this, this, this judgment, this pronouncement. There seems to be, and we'll look at it in a moment, there seems to be this genuine concern, a genuine sorrow over the destruction of Moab. If you're not familiar with Moab, there's kind of an interesting relationship between Judah and Moab. The, Moabout, the, Mo, the Moabites came from a man named Moab. His father was Lot. If you remember, Lot is the nephew of Abraham, the great patriarch. Unfortunately, after Lot was rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah in a drunken stupor, stupor, He uh, had sexual relationship with his daughters, and one of their sons that were born is Moab, incest. Yet we read in the book of Ruth, which is a beautiful book of scripture, that Naomi and her husband Elimelech had no problem going to Moab for food. There was a famine. They ran to Moab. As the story continues in the book of Ruth, Boaz, if you remember, kinsman redeemer, Marries Ruth, the Moabite woman, seems to have no problem when she turns to Christ. So there's this kind of mixed relationship between the Moabites and Judah. Moses writes in Deuteronomy that the Moabites were not allowed in the assembly of God's people. Kind of a mixed bag, I think. One commentator said this, although Moab and Judah were never real friendly, they were not characterized by the unremitting hostility which existed between Israel and, let's say, Edom, end quote. But this oracle, 15 through 16, chapter 16, Isaiah uses this term, these terms, weeping and wailing and crying out and lamenting many, many times as he, as he unfolds God's word. Most of the time it's about Moab and the people of Moab, how they need to re- repent and they need to, to weep and to be broken about what's going on. But We'll see in a moment that sometimes it's Isaiah broken about Moab. Let's see, what, 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 does he, what does he mean by that? So the first thing, chapter 15, verses 1 through, 9, 1 through 9, in your notes, you'll see it's the lament. Disaster and decimation. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. An oracle concerning Moab. Because Er of Moab is laid waste in the night, Moab is undone. Because Ker of Moab is laid waste in the night, Ker, yeah, Ker, Wasted a night, Moab is undone. He has gone up to the temple and to Dion, Dibon, to the high places to weep over Nebo and Medaba. Moab wails. On every head is baldness, every beard is shown. In the streets they wear sackcloth. On the housetops and in the squares, everyone wails and melts with tears. Heshbon, Elileah cry out. Their voice is heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore, the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His, his soul trembles. My heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Eglath Shelayesha, for at the ascent of Luitha, 
They go up weeping. On the road to Heronium, they raise a cry of destruction. The waters of Nimrim are desolate. Desolation. The grass is withered. The vegetation fails. The greenery is no more. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they've laid up, they carry away over the brooks of the willows. For a cry has gone up and around the land of Moab. Her wailing reaches Eglam and, and her wailing reaches Beer Elim. For the waters of Dibon are full of blood. And I will bring upon Dibon even more. A lion for those of Moab who escape for the remnant of the land. Again, God bless the reading of his word. Philistia, you see it on your map in the back of that page, west of Judah. Oracle against them. Now we move west beyond the Dead Sea to Moab. You'll see R is a border town. Kerr is, is, uh, is central to Moab. And the picture that Isaiah is painting, painting for us is an invasion, a uh, breaking down of the border, and, and a penetration into the very city and the heartland of Moab against this oracle. God's people are reminded, don't join foreign nations. Trust the Lord. It's not going to go well with them. Here's the oracle against the Moabites. Don't lean on them either. Isaiah begins by announcing Moab's lament and sure ruin. In the night, quickly, every place, every voice. Dibon, verse 2 was north of the Arnon River. You'll see all these cities on your map. It once belonged to Israel. There were high places there. Same with the, with the mountains of Nebo and Medeba. There, there's these, these places and these cities that Isaiah is talking about. Is where the people of Moab, the Moabite people would go and worship their false god. Shema, C-H-E-M-O-S-H, was their false god. And they're saying these people of Moab are going to these places and they're weeping. They're weeping bitterly. They recognize what is happening. They're running to their false god thinking, if I weep in the temple, if I weep in the high places, if I'm broken and I cry out to them, maybe I'll find refuge there. But there's no refuge with idolatry. There's no refuge with idolatry. They're shaving their head. Look, verse 2b. Uh, 2b, they're cutting off the beard. They're wearing sackcloth. All signs of lamenting and brokenness and mourning. They have a beard in that day to be cut off as a disgrace, humiliation. They can't even lift their face up. Shame and defeat has come to Moab. City to city. The helplessness is so bad that the armed men, verse 4, their only hope, the warriors, the armed men of the nation, those who trained to defend the country are crying out in despair and defeat. They're shaken to the very core. Verse 5 begins with the prophets talking about his own heartfelt lamentation over what's going on. Look what he says. It's really about all the... It's, it, Isaiah sees the innocent fugitives who, who are escaping in horror of this war. Isaiah moves... To the thought of these, these frightened lines in verse 6. Of these people who are now refugees, refugees crying out in the street. My heart cries out, verse 5. Her fugitives flee. And, and he sees them leaving and, and running and, and looking for shelter. And he's broken about it. Uprooted people clutching in verse 6, 7. They're, they're little bit of the things they have as they're moving out of their nation, trying to look for a place of, of security, just breaks the heart of the prophet. 
Verse 9 puts a capstone on the horror, talking about fleeing in the blood, adding to blood, pictured as a lion. All who will attack anyone who remains in the land. One can't read this and see the brokenness of Isaiah and not think of our own world, our own country, and the countries surrounding uh, us and, and, and throughout the world and the refugees over the past 10 or 15 years running, escaping, trying to flee war-torn areas, drug-infested, out-of-control countries looking simply for food to eat for their children all over the world. In fact, one of our global partners, our gospel partners, Matt and Nicole Peschel, that we, we pray for and support financially, work in Eastern Europe, in Budapest, Hungary. Thousands of refugees are flocking there from all over the place, like the Middle East, Africa. Some of them fleeing their countries because, and this is what he wrote, I took actually out of his uh, email he sent. He says, some of them are fleeing their countries because of the persecution for following Christ. Others that are, that are leaving their countries and coming there, others come to Christ along the way and suffer extreme separation and pain for their faith. And Isaiah sees this and, he, and he's weeping, broken. These children, these moms, these kids. I mean, you've got to ask the question, do we weep? Are we broken for them? Are we concerned? Is, is our heart stirred up? I think sometimes the whole refugee thing, and this is my own opinion, if you don't agree, that's okay, becomes a, too much of a political thing. I know that everybody's got their job to do, but the God's people should be broken over the kids and the families that are running away from these places. They have no food, nothing to eat. Just care for them, love them, pray for them. Maybe do a short-term trip or go to Budapest. Okay, let me, let me move on. The lament. Second, the appeal. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. 16, 1 through 5. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land. From Selah, by the way of the desert, to the mount of the daughter of Zion, like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest. So are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night and the height of moon shelter the outcast. Do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcast of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased, he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. Then, verse 5, a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. In that first verse, chapter 16, verse 1, there's the sending of a lamb. If you notice that in verse first, in uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Sending of a lamb was a way in which the, the Moabites were attempting to solve the problem of what's going on in their country and the refugees that are in the dry desert of Moab. You can see Moab and Judah close. And if they, if they wanted to escape Moab and they want to go into Judah, for protection, they needed to send a lamb. And that may sound crazy to you, but that's what they did. You can see Second Kings 3. It's an act of loyalty. It's an act of submission. It's letting them know we need help. We need favor. We'll submit to you. We'll submit to the ruler of Judah. We'll submit to Jerusalem. And here it says the daughter of Zion. Interesting that he mentions Isaiah in this situation, the daughters of Zion. 
Because in Isaiah 62, that same word is used for the waiting, the, 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 the people waiting for their salvation. Isaiah says this, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. A, a, a people waiting for their salvation from the daughters of Zion. Then in Zechariah chapter 9, 9, I, I hope you find this interesting. I know I do. The same word, daughter of Zion, is used for a people waiting for their king to come. Zechariah 9, 9, the, the land and the people waiting for a king. This is what he says, Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Does that sound familiar? I hope so. John and Matthew, two gospel accounts, mention that verse, quote that verse on when? The triumphal entry. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem the week before he was to be crucified on the cross, on that Sunday he comes in and they are waving palm branches and he comes riding in. On a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And that Zechariah 9 is quoted that day. Verse 2, we find a description of the situation with Moab. They're, they're, they're distressed. They're, they're fleeing birds. They're scattered nests. They're, they're seeking safety in the fords of Anon, the river, right by the boundary of the land. Verse 3 through 4, speak of Moabites now willing to place themselves in the hand of Judah. Notice the turn there. It's only Zion that can give counsel. Verse 3, give counsel. It is, it, is, it is in Zion because that's where the Messiah is. In Zion. He has been given the spirit, remember we looked at that, of counsel, of wisdom and justice. So Moab asks, can we find shelter? But it's not only shelter, it's not enough. They need protection. They, it's not, it's, it's counsel and righteousness. And this decisions are not enough. They need shelter. So although he says, give counsel, grant justice, he goes on to say, we need shelter. That's what I meant to say. We need shelter. Moab requests Judah to become a shelter. Look what it says. Like a noonday sun, a noonday sun, protection from destruction. And Judah answers Moab, I think, in, in, in verse 4. When, that's their answer. You want shelter? You want, you want counsel? You want justice? You want protection? Well, when the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and the one who trembles on the foot has vanished, a throne will be established in steadfast love. And on it will sit faithfulness, the tent of the house of David, who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. And the backdrop of you see your backdrop of this request and this answer is what it is David. In fact, in the time of David, David captured Moab and Moab sent to David who sat on the throne in Jerusalem, in Zion, lambs and, 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 and gifts. 2 Samuel 8. By seeking shelter in the house of David, they are recognized that their only hope is in Israel's God whose chosen king rules in Jerusalem. And when the oppression ends... The ideal ruler will reign. And look what it says. It's in steadfast love. That's that Hebrew word, chesed. Covenantal love will be their only shelter. Their only security. Their only justice. Their only righteousness. They will be secure. They will have refuge. 
John Oswald in his commentary says, Isaiah recognizes that Moab's hope is identical with Judah. Identical with Judah. Both wait for a king of Israel who will somehow embody those traits which are in the fact, which are in fact the character of God, end quote. That's our Jesus. That's why we're calling this the gospel according to Isaiah. He's the child that's been born, the counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the son of David, reign on his throne forever. Chapter 9 says, and on the crease of his government, the peace will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, it will be established. He will uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. That's their refuge. The lament, the appeal. Now look at the contrast. Look at verse 6 through 12. Notice, notice how things change a little bit. Look at verse 6. We have heard, this is the contrast, we have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is. Of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence, and his idle boasting is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail. Mourn, utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Kir Hareseth. For the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibma, the lords of the nation, have struck down its branches, which reached to Jezer and strayed to the deserts. Its shoots spread abroad and passed over the seas, this large area. Therefore, Isaiah says, I weep with the weeping of Jezer from the vine of Sibma. I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Elileah. And from your summer fruit and your harvest, the shout has ceased and joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful fields. The vineyards, no songs are sung, no cheers are raised, no treader treads out wine in the presses. I have put an end to the shouting. Therefore... My inner parts moan like the lyre of Moab and the inmost self of Kir Hariseth. The contracts of pride and destruction. I think the appeal of Moab was, was, I think the appeal earlier on was real and there was an appeal. But I think what Isaiah is saying, if, there, if there's a way for which you, if there is a way for you not to take refuge, not to have the, the king of, of Judah keep you safe and have refuge, the way not to get that done is through pride. It's through pride. That's what he says. We know, we've heard of your pride. Pride's an issue. We've been seeing it week after week. Not only for God's enemy, all right, easy to point, but for God's people. In verse 6, the prophet speaks on behalf of Judah. We have heard. We have heard about the pride of Moab. Verse 9, he speaks about himself weeping over it. In verse 7, everyone's called to be broken, the whole city. The raisin cakes, a delicacy used in, in this joyful festivals are no more. In fact, chapter 16, verse 8, there's this picture of Moab, uh, luxurious vines that are stretched out over the land. The branches uh, straight over the desert, it shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. There's this great harvest, there's this, this great abundance and prosperity. They're, they're singing and their songs are singing. All of a sudden, Isaiah says, you know what? The songs of the celebrators are silenced. All that remains in the pitiful sound is weeping, verse 10. All of a sudden, this prosperity is no more. 
years of cultivating these grapes, there's no joy in harvesting of vineyards. There's, there's no wine press, you notice that. The orchard, everything will be destroyed. And this tragedy that Isaiah sees brings no joy or jubilation, but brokenness to the prophet and, I believe, God as well. In fact, verse 11, if you look at verse 11, is a Hebrew word. It literally means bowels. It's, it's an inner, uh, inner parts. It's, it's hard to transcribe from, from Hebrew to English. Ed Young says this. It means there, he's not just feeling sorry. It was a profound stirring of the soul. Emotionally stirring of the soul from a deep affection for those to whom Isaiah was called to preach. In a moment, in a moment, Moab, from their pride and boastful, exuberant singing and prosperity, comes crashing down. Verse 12. And when, Ma- when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high places, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, what happens? He will not prevail. The national God that they worship, their false God, will not be of any help. If pride was going to keep them from their salvation, rest and refuge of the Masonic King, they were going to seek after their own gods and they were not going to help them at all. As I studied it, it reminded me of John 6. We went through the Gospel of John some years back. Jesus tells his disciples and the Pharisees, the leaders of that day, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the... For the life of the world is my flesh. Of course, speaking about intimacy, believing, trusting, and appropriating Christ's death into your own life. And then John goes on to say that many of the people that heard that, many, just got up and walked away. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to the twelve, do you want to go? Maybe he saw that look in their eye. I don't know. And Simon Peter, the head of the twelve, the, the, the leader, says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone. You alone. Not multiple ways, not multiple gods, not multiple stories. You alone have the words of eternal life. The reason why God hates pride is that our pride replaces God and arrogantly we place our pride on the reign of our hearts. Self-exaltation, self-glorification, all is rooted in pride, pride, and it's really a proclamation that we are our own deity. Pride always acts like God. Pride thinks they know more than God knows. God, pride thinks that they are wiser than God knows what God knows. They are clever, more clever than God And they are more enlightened than God and they are better than him. That's what pride says. But God declares in Proverbs, pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. It is better, the proverb says, to be of a lowly spirit. The poor, the broken, the humble. Than to divide the spoil. Give me mine. With the proud. If you're here this morning, please, we plead with you. Don't let pride keep you from fleeing to Christ, running to Christ. 
trusting him for forgiveness and salvation. Pride will keep you from your refuge. And last, we have the appendix. Past and present. Commentators are all over the place in this verse, I will tell you. I think, I think, I think Isaiah is saying in verses 13 and 14, this is the word of the Lord spoken concerning Moab in the past, but now present, the Lord has spoken. In three years, like the years of the hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all this great multitude, and those who remain will be very few and feeble. A hired man is count. I think he's saying, you were warned, you were told in the past, now you're being told again. You're anticipating is three years, a hired person will be someone who, who would just simply count the days. And that happened when Assyria invaded Moab. Three years. This oracle, this warning, this, this, this chapter, 15 and 16, if you notice anything about the chapter, it's not... It, Isaiah doesn't approach this chapter with a, an oh well, stinks to be you attitude, but is weeping and lamenting and crying out. He's saying not only should the people weep and cry out for their own land, Isaiah not only is weeping and crying out for the Moab destruction, but let's not forget Isaiah is God's mouthpiece, God's prophet, God's man, God's spokesman. Mortier was right when he says, when the Lord visits in holy justice, he laments with holy sorrow. What the Lord visits in holy justice, he laments with holy sorrow. It is we who find, he says, tension between his justice and his love. But the divine nature is one and all of the Lord's attributes are in perfect Harmony, end quote. That's why Ezekiel could say, uh, as the Lord declares, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants them to turn from their wickedness and turn from their evil ways. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus, Bethany, leaves, heads to Jerusalem. It is the Sunday, the first day of the week before he will be crucified. It is Palm Sunday. It is the triumphal entry. It is that day in which Zechariah said, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. He's coming righteous, having salvation, humbled on a donkey that day. Zechariah 9. The king has come and salvation is here. The land and the people who await, he has come. That day in chapter 19, verse 41, it says that Jesus drew near and saw the city could see the city coming around the turn. And look what it says. You have it in your notes. He wept over it, saying, would you, would that you, even you, have known on this day the things that make for peace. You see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is weeping as he looks back at the opportunities that the city had to repent of their sins. If, if you had only known time and time again Turn from your sin. Repent and trust in the gospel. His name is Jesus. And Jesus looks back and weeps at the opportunities they had. But Jesus also looks within the hearts of the people. Their dead and their, 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 their deadness and their blindness. In this day, he says, the things which make for peace. But no, they have, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Blindness and dead. Jesus weeps. He looks back. He looks within. Look, he looks ahead. Verse 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 43. A day's coming. Jesus knows that. The enemies will, will set up a barricade. They will surround you on every side. 
you and your children, to leave not one stone upon another. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. He knows that Jerusalem is going to be ransacked and destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. He looks back. He looks within. He looks ahead. And look what does. He looks around and weeps. He had just been escorted in with people shouting, Hosanna, the king has come. But he knows that the king they're looking for is not the king that he is. The king to take over Rome was not the one that came. The one that came was the one to die on a cross for our sins. And Jesus comes loving us and weeping in spite of our sins. He weeps over the lost condition of the city and over us. Jesus had no sin to weep over. But he certainly knows your sin. And he certainly knows my sin. And he certainly knows the sins of the nations. The brokenness of people. And even though he knew, and even though he wept on that day, and he knew the road before him was leading him to Golgotha, to Calvary, to Roman crucifixion, dying in atonement for our sins, he went anyway. Even though he knew we rebelled. Even though he knew the road before him. Even though he knew many would reject him. He went anyway. He kept the course He kept his focus. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus goes to the cross, weeps over our sin, rebellion and refusal to come to him, but he went to the cross anyway. Is that the Jesus you know? Come to him. Flee to him. Seek refuge in him. The king has come. See the loving heart of God. See the outstretched hand inviting you to come. See his tears on your behalf inviting you to come. Seek refuge in God. Seek refuge in the salvation. Seek refuge in the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the refuge you have given to us in the gospel. That your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, paid that penalty for our sins. He took on himself the judgment, the anger, and the wrath that we deserve for our sins. You are holy, 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 and we are sinful. But you are also a God of love and a God of grace and a God of mercy. And both your holiness has been justified, has been uh, uh, ratified, it's been been proven uh, to be true because Jesus in his death paid the penalty for our sin. It upholds your holiness at the same time punishes those who rebel against you. And Lord, we trust that Jesus is that punishment. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the King of Kings who went before us and and wept over the brokenness of your people. Lord, help us to see that beauty this morning. Help us to rejoice in the glorious grace you have given to us. Help us to see your calling and your love and your grace and your hands extended to us saying, come, come to Jesus, find refuge in him, find salvation in him. Help us, Lord, we pray as we continue to worship you in song now. In Jesus' good name, amen.